This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Lily Lukau. We want to remind you that this program broadcasts from the rightful lands of the Tiwa people. Tonight, we hear from Rafael Rubio, president of Net Medical, a telemedicine company and laboratory for COVID testing and more. He shares his knowledge regarding COVID-19 from his perspective with a degree in physics from New Mexico State University and his current role as the president at a COVID testing laboratory. We have some community events you will not want to miss and we'll provide you some additional COVID resources and updates. Let's get started with this informative and very important interview. Here's Roberta Rael, the executive director of Generation Justice, speaking with our guest, Raf Rubio. This is Roberta Rael and I am with Generation Justice. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Rafael Rubio, who is the president of NAP Medical. Rafael holds a degree in physics and has helped direct NAP Medical's lab for several years. And today, we're going to talk about COVID-19 and vaccines. Thank you for being here with us, Rafael. Oh, my pleasure, Roberta. Good to see you again. So, Rafael, I would love for you to just share with our listeners anything else that you would like for them to know about you. So, I've been in New Mexico quite some time. I, I, I'm not quite a native, but I've been here since the 80s, so uh, that, that could count for something. I was born in Texas. Um, I hope that doesn't offend anybody, uh, but I've been here a long time, basically a Southwest boy. I uh, went to school here, went to, uh, to Highland High School, I graduated from New Mexico State University. And then I did a little bit of, of college research up in uh, Boulder, Colorado at UC Boulder. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the locals, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. If you went to Highland High School, uh, you are a Burgueño, uh, <laughs> true and true. So tell us more about Net Medical, just a little bit of the history of the company and the work that you do there. Sure. Net Medical is a telemedicine company at heart. We've done telemedicine services for a long time, including mobile radiology and neurology and neurosurgery consults for the, for the UNM Access Program, which we were part of for a really, really long time. And we've provided these services, trying to get care into places where you normally wouldn't be able to get the care, right? If you can get a specialist to reach out into a hospital that doesn't have that specialty, then maybe you can keep the patient local, close to their family, and get them treated just as well as you would if they needed emergency transport. That's not always the case, but technology has helped close those gaps. We noticed during the pandemic that the consultation numbers that we saw were going down quite a bit. Uh, which was not intuitive, right? You would think that, that if we were getting locked down, you'd expect to see more online consults for, for the state, but it kind of went the other direction. People got scared to go to the hospital for, for conditions that, that they normally would just go and get a visit for. So we realized at that time, one of the best things we could do it would, to help the community would be establish some lab testing here in the state, which is what we did. We built out a, a Clea Moderate Lab, where we were able to test for COVID-19 and get people answers to, to, to whether or not they had this new virus or not. And we had a contract with the state of New Mexico during that time to deliver those services. So we have a 
location up in Taos, which which was operating out of the Sagebrush Inn for a while because that's all we had, and now we have a retail location there uh, right by the Albertsons. And and here in town, we've got our our lab here where we do uh, the the telemedicine services now. Um, and that that's the history of Net Medical. And my role there is just to keep try to keep everything moving, right? Try to keep everything running, understand the big picture of where things are going. And and my core competency, if you will, is in technology. So, so I do a lot of the technological work and developed a lot of the software that we've used at Net Medical for, for decades now. I've been at Net Medical since 1997. Is that right? <laughs> it's maybe 1999. It's been 20 plus years. That's, that's what I remember from, from, from that situation. So, so that's my history at Net Medical and what we do as a company. Thank you so much, Rafael. And, you know, as New Mexico has so many rural frontier frontier areas, and you know I'm a product of that. I know how very important telemedicine has been for folks outside of the um, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, and Las Cruces areas, because New Mexico does have a health crisis right now in terms of not having enough health uh, experts and personnel across the state. So um, really appreciate the history of. Net medical and providing those needed services in the most vulnerable areas. And then pivoting over to COVID and the pandemic, the early days of the pandemic, and where we're at right now in the pandemic. And so, a general question I want to ask you is where are we in the pandemic from your perspective? Right. In this story, we the, the world has just been introduced to a new virus three years ago, and we survived the initial waves, which were difficult on, on the world and our country and, and us as, as people. And we're at the point of the story where I think everybody's tired. They're, they're, they're tired of it. It's, uh, it's, it's this thing that popped up and it affected everybody's lives and and to their best of their abilities, everyone tried to play ball through difficult messaging, through confusing messaging at some, sometimes, you know, and everyone tried to do the best that they could. And we've kind of come to this, this, this agreement as a group that maybe it's, maybe it's really not that big of a deal anymore. Maybe the, the damage is done and we can think of it like a cold or a flu. And it's, if we call, if we put the right names around it and we listen to the right scientific studies, then it's endemic. And, and maybe everything's just okay and we don't have to worry about mitigations and that kind of thing. Uh, but, but as the story goes on, we're going to learn more about it. And, and some of the things we're gonna learn about the, the virus is how it affects us long-term. Um, we're gonna understand how it affects us when we have it multiple times. We're gonna understand if there's any accumulated harm that comes from being infected multiple times. And this story probably will play out in a way where both behavior and technology will adapt to a better place where we do a better job of not getting sick from it and have more tools in the toolbox to not only react, but hopefully prevent the, the illness in, as it goes forward. Because if, if you know anyone that, that ended up with a long COVID style condition after having COVID, then you know that, that, that it's not just hot, it's severe disease and death that, you know, it's not just the death angle that we're worried about, right? It's, it's the severe disease piece of it that can go on for 
a long time. And you may have seen some of that in your social media feed. You may have seen people that you know that used to be avid social media content creators. They kind of fell off the map because they got a long COVID or MECFS or some other condition that, that ties into a, a COVID infection. And we don't have answers for those people yet. We don't really understand it. The doctors are working on it. The scientists are working on it. Everyone's trying to understand what's happened, but to, to a certain percentage of the population, uh, this has been a, a life-changing kind of illness. So that's where we are. In my mind, that's where we are in the story. We're at the part where everyone gets tired. Everyone has put their guard down at this point. They're not really worried about it. The news isn't really pushing it. The governments have kind of washed their hands of messaging, not, not to say that all governments have, but you know, the CDC still does some work on this and the FDA is still busy keeping tests under EUA and keeping them available. But it is definitely out of out of sight, out of mind kind of situation, and I don't I don't I think we overshot the mark coming back to to think that we're in, in a safe place now. So I, I expect the story to go on and us to learn more, and hopefully the technology gets better. Um, but a lot of the a lot of the techniques that we learned to to put an end, not an end, but to 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 really get respiratory disease in general under control, we've kind of let that we've kind of let those go. <laughs> And and we're just letting it rip again, so so that that that's where I see us in the study that, that we still have lessons to learn um, because we we got comfortable. Thank you for that, Rafael. I think I would love for you to share with our listeners some of what you helped some young people with Generation Justice, the Leaders for Change fellows, just understand how COVID nineteen specifically virus works. Uh, once you contract it, what happens um, in the immune system? Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. So let's start with what is a virus? Uh, a, a virus is a teeny tiny, let's call it, it's not quite alive, but it's definitely made of the stuff that life is made of, it's made of proteins. And these things are really small. You could fit a hundred of them in a droplet of water, right? You, you could get, you know, probably a lot more than that. But the way to think of it is that in a tiny droplet of water that floats in the air, it doesn't hit the ground. It's so light that it doesn't fall to the ground. You could have seven, 10 of these virus particles just hanging out in an air, what's called an aerosolized particle. And these aerosolized particles float in the air and they go in your nose and they get to your lungs. In particular, there is a, uh, a docking site, if you will, called ACE2. This is an area where the, the spike protein attaches to, and because of how it's built, it can go directly into your lung cells. And once it does that, it turns your lung cells into a factory for making more virus, which if you wanna give it some intent, that's the only thing a virus wants to do. A virus wants to get in and replicate and make more virus. That's the only thing that it knows how to do. And, and this virus in particular doesn't seem to take very much uh, to get into your system and it starts just cranking out more virus and it does it so fast that your immune system may or may not be able to keep up right your immune system has all of these defenses uh both innate in other words things you know when you're born you, you, your immune system knows how to fight them and adaptive which is what you learn right your immune system sees some things out there and it learns how to fight them over time and in this case if you've never seen it then the virus can replicate so fast in your body that it can overwhelm your immune system and cause some, some real, real problems, and particularly through inflammation. Uh, 
and, and it's specifically inflammation of what's called adipose tissue. So fat cells, if you will. So, so that's how it operates, right? And, and our immune systems, what they do is they see, they see the virus. And if they see it before, they recognize it and go, oh, I remember you. I know exactly what to do with you. And it starts releasing antibodies and it starts releasing uh, uh, T cells and all the things that it needs to go clean up this mess that the virus has started to create and cleans it up really, really fast. So, so that's, that's the idea. And for normal antigens or, or normal illnesses or viruses that are out there, the curve, the curve doesn't move as fast as it does with, with SARS-CoV-2, which is the name, the actual name of the virus that causes the disease COVID-19. It doesn't, they don't go as fast. So our immune systems have some time to do their work and figure out, hey, I got, you know, you give you a fever for a while, we're going to figure out, we need this antibody, that antibody, this, does this B cell, remember that? Well, this whole mechanism, this whole complicated mechanism gets kicked off where your immune system reacts to what's happening. And in the case of this virus, it, it's really a matter of timing of how fast can you react. And the truth of the matter is, is that if you fought it off before, then you can fight it off faster. And that's the essence of all immunity here for, for COVID-19. And that dovetails into ways that, you can, ways that you can fight it, right? In particular, if you can train your immune system without having to get effective, that's a better option in terms of risk management than just getting it a couple of times, right? Because your immune system needs to see things at least two times, spaced apart, eh, maybe six months, maybe a year. You need that space. It needs that time to, to do its thing, if you will, uh, where that thing is to figure out not only how to deal with what it sees, but how to deal with what's going to come next. In other words, variants, right? Your immune system has the ability to, to do a little bit of guesswork to figure out what variants are gonna come up and how to react to it, because it's been doing this for a long time. Our immune systems are, they're miracles. They're absolute miracles for, for keeping us healthy and keeping us going. So, so that, that's the picture. That's how the virus gets in. It's an aerosolized virus. It gets in and attacks your immune system through the lung cells, through a receptor called ACE2. Your immune system responds in a way where it either has to search for the right uh, defenses in order to defend against it, or you've primed it in a way where, where you have those uh, defenses in play and you'll have the right antibodies, maybe, if you're lucky, for the variants, which are short-lived and contract after a few months. But really, the T cells and the memory B cells are the cells that, in the adaptive immune system, that give you protection against severity and death. And that's really where you need to be in terms of, of how to protect yourself, is get your adaptive immune system to the point where it's really no big deal. Uh, anecdotally, uh, I, I consider myself a complete COVID guinea pig at this point. I've had virtually every, <laughs> every uh, uh, treatment that you can have for it that has been available. Uh, I've had the vaccines. Uh, I've had COVID twice now. And my timing on all of this was set up in a way where, where I had a year between my first, let's call it dose, uh, and second dose of, of COVID. And with that timing, by the time I got uh, COVID for the second time, and took Paxlovid, which is the drug that's available for it, instead of being a 11-day process where I was just suffering for 11 days going through every symptom in the book, it was three days. I turned around in three days. So 
I, I know that's a what we call in science an n equals one kind of story or one sample or an anecdote, and that's not scientific to to project that onto anybody else. But my lived experience in this is that the decisions that I made made my COVID experience much shorter and probably less dangerous. And um, and I think that's important. I think it's important to know that the things that were that we have done have mattered in this pandemic. So let's pivot now a little bit and let's talk about vaccines as um, what, how I'm hearing you speak, Raphael, when you're saying dose, the, the dose of the virus includes the dose through the vaccine as well as when people actually contract the virus, the actual virus. So I'd like to um, have you talk a little bit about vaccines and how in particular the, the most utilized vaccine for COVID-19 um, works in the system to introduce the system to this, to this virus and what we need to know about that still today at this stage of the pandemic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is, this is a great story. So uh, uh, as much as you can have a great story inside of a pandemic, this is, this is one of, of real heroes in technology and science coming, coming through and, and delivering what we needed at the time when we needed it. In December of 2019, the, an ophthalmologist in China realized that there was a pneumonia of unknown origin going around and that it was severely affecting people and they were getting sick. By January, I want to say January 11th of 2020, Chinese scientists had isolated the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19, and had published the blueprint for, for how you build it, right? If, you had, if, if, if organic molecules were a Lego set, you could actually build a virus particle if you had the tools to do it out of this blueprint. It's called the genetic sequence, right? So they, they, they got the whole genome and genetically sequenced the, the blueprint, if you will, for, for SARS-CoV-2. Now, at the same time, the, we had been working in the United States and in, and in Europe on uh, a technology that lets you take these blueprints and craft messages that you can put into your own cells to build stuff, right? These are, the, it's called a uh, mRNA, right? That's what it's called. It's called messenger RNA is really what you need to take away from it. And the way it works is that it's a message. And the message is essentially a little program, a little like a computer program, which can go into a cell and it can build something out of what's made out of the, what's in on, on the inside of the cell. Now, now what they did is they said, well, let's pick a part of, the, of this uh, virus that's unique to it. And let's see if we can make our cells build that piece and what they made was the spike. So, you know, if you imagine a coronavirus and it has all little spikes on it, everyone's seen the picture, right? Well, that little spike that's on there, they made a message that they could encode with the messenger RNA to instruct our cells to make the spike. And then because of decades of research, they realized that once you manufacture a spike floating around inside the cell, that it's gonna change its shape. It's gonna go and it's gonna extend out. And they're like, nope, let's shove that back together. And then let's insert two, what are called prolines inside of the spike so it can maintain its shape or it's conforming, right? So, so now we had a way to send a message to build a spike that's exactly the spike that's going around in the virus. Uh, 
right? And then they were like, well, now we need to get this into people, right? We need it. How are we going to get into people? And the answer was a, a, a fancy word called lipid nanoparticles, but it actually means a fat cell or like imagine a tiny droplet of butter, right? So they, so these, these liquid nanoparticles, these little tiny droplets of butter, they put these little messages in them. And then they said, let's try it. Let's see if this works for a vaccine. There's more to it than that, but that's the essence of what it does. So, so they set it up. The federal government at the time, uh, they did something right and they funded everything from every possible vaccine manufacturer. They funded all of the stages of all of the safety tests that they would need to do for all of the vaccines that were being tried. This wasn't the mRNA ones weren't the only ones. And in nine months, they pulled off all three phases of the safety test for what would happen. And they would literally, they start with a small group of people. These people got injected with these lipid nanoparticles with the mRNA messages in them. In other words, the little fat particles with the instructions of how to make a spike. Those spikes were, were injected into them. The spikes were created in the cells and their immune systems took over. They chopped up the spike because that's another thing that was never taught in school, right? Is that the immune system chops these things up and presents them to, to the other immune system cells so that it can recognize what's going on. And the first safety trials went fine. The phase two trials went fine. And the phase three trials had tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And granted there are side effects because there's side effects anytime you do anything, but on net, these things worked. Right. And that to me, that's an important message that these vaccines worked because there's some people that push back and say, hey, these the vaccines are dangerous and that, that, that they didn't work. But that's only because they've never heard the stories of vaccines that didn't work. Uh, vaccines that don't work make it so that if you get the illness in your life, that it is fatal to you. Right. Because your body recognizes all the pieces and then does all the wrong things. And you can never build immunity to it. So I, I think you know that I, I'm not an expert in this area, but I have read the literature that shows that that's exactly what happens. If you mess with the conformity of an antigen when you're building an RNA-style vaccine, that the, if it didn't work, the message would be so much worse than it is now, right? So I won't I won't dwell on that, but I will say that. The thing, if you're going to take anything away from this whole story of mRNA and, and, and lipid nanoparticles, is that uh, the vaccines worked, and it was a way to get your immune system, uh, it was to give it the cliff notes, it give it the fast track, get, give it a way to just go faster when it recognizes uh, SARS-CoV-2 as an infection. And it does it without you needing to get infected, which is all other kinds of proteins and all other kinds of illness that we don't completely understand. So I understand the pushback uh, from a moral perspective. There's people that, you know, not only do they don't, they don't drink anything, they don't smoke anything, they don't eat anything unhealthy. And, and that same purity mindset keeps you from wanting to take a shot. And I get that. I understand where they're coming from on this. But from a risk perspective, it's either you get a tiny, tiny bit of the, the least amount of impurity, if you want to think of it that way, or a whole lot of uncontrolled impurity, which, which could be de really detrimental to you. So it's, it's a choice you'll have to make just because it's, it's everyone's likely going to face this virus at some point in their life. Um, 
anyway, I probably overshot the mark <laughs> answering your question, but that's that's it. That the history of that vaccine, it's actually really cool. It's really cool tech. Uh, we did a lot right to get it out there, and it's a it's a great tool in the toolbox to use in this fight against COVID nineteen. Thank you so much for helping us um, understand, but also remember about why the vaccine um, is still one of the primary mitigating practices that is being used globally um, at this time. You are listening to Generation Justice, broadcasting on 89.9 KUNM FM. You just heard part one of our conversation with Rafael Rubio, the president of Net Medical, who is sharing his knowledge about COVID-19, vaccinations, and the best COVID testing practices. Now, here's the second part of this valuable interview. Here's Roberta Rael interviewing Raf Rubio. Let's talk about at this time. So September, 2023. We now are, um, as you said, you know, some people say it's four years. It's, you know, three years in, almost four years at this point. Um, we've learned a lot. There's been a lot that has happened. And um, we're at this stage where the messaging is very confusing. There's some messaging saying the pandemic is over. There's some messaging saying, no, just the emergency aspect of the pandemic is over. And um, the confusion in the messaging, I think, creates confusion on what we should and should not be doing. Um, and then another layer, which you kind of touched on, is that this virus, this particular virus, it just, there's so many, many unknowns about it. And it might hit you and you're gonna have whatever symptoms and your case is gonna be your case. But if I get it, my case might be very different than your case because of medical history, health conditions, genetics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, the level of virus that we are exposed to also could have a factor. Um, so I'd like for you to just talk a little bit about that piece of COVID-19, and then we're going to talk about September 2023, and what, what do we know and what do we don't know? Yeah, it's absolutely fair to say that everyone's reaction to a COVID-19 infection will be different. And... They're starting to understand that a little bit, right? They're starting to understand what, um, what's the right way to put it? It's is what pieces of your immune system have to be there in order for you to not have symptoms. So this is this is one of the areas where, where science is trying is discovering what's going on. It turns out that that everyone's immune system, not only just everyone's system, but everyone's immune system, you you get from your parents thousands of known things, right? The things that you that you know about already in your immune system come directly from your parents. And you are a mixture of, of those things. So the immune response that, that you may have 
could be drastically different than even a family member, right? Because there, it the, the immune system just carries as much information as it can, and it benefits across the population by varying what happens per person to find. It's essentially searching for the strongest links, if you will, uh, and then those those will will survive and those will will uh, reproduce, right? Um, but it's very much the case that that everyone's reaction to this will be different. And it's very much the case that the reactions to multiple infections are simply unknown at this point. So so let me let, to put it in perspective, right? There was an idea early in the pandemic that what we need to do is we need to reach herd immunity. Does anyone remember that? The, we got to get herd immunity. That's what we're going to do. We're going to, whether you get vaccinated or you get sick, we're going to hit this point where we got, we've got herd immunity. Well, we, we're at about 90%. I think 90% of people have had an infection or a vaccination at this point in the United States. And there's no herd immunity, right? <laughs> Is you're, you're still getting it. It was one of the shockers, uh, uh, depending on, on what, uh, depending on who you were listening to, the idea was that the, the vaccines were going to stop, that they would stop with you. The transmission would stop with you. Um, and traditionally, that is true, right? Traditionally, that would be true for other illnesses. And it wasn't for this one. And we don't know exactly why. There's lots of theories and lots of arguments over how we got there and what's actually happening, whether it's just changing so rapidly that you can't get out ahead of it. And that's why there, there was no herd immunity. But for a long time there, some really smart people that you saw in the news were certain of this. They were certain that this was going to get it out, it was going to be over, and it was just going to be done. And it turns out that it, it that this virus is so good at treating each one of us as individuals that it's really hard to make predictions across, across populations of what what is going to happen. And it is changing. There's still variants, right? There's still people tracking the variants of what's coming. There's, there's some variants that aren't even Omicron related at this point, which we'll have to get some data on whether or not um, our immune systems are, protect us and the vaccines have protected us against that, right? That'll come down to whether or not the T-cell epitopes, if you want to call them that, have changed. Or, but there's still a lot to learn. There's still, there's still science to do in understanding it. Um, but it, we, we don't know how much an infectious dose is still. We don't know what the correlates of protection are. Scientifically, we're just getting started on understanding these viruses. And, and if you track the history of HIV as a virus, uh, not that I'm equating the two, but just the history of the virus as, the, as it was treated, it took 10, 20 years before we really understood, like wh you know, where did it come from? What's its history? Uh, all of these things, right? Uh, so we, we've got a long ways to go. We have a long ways to go to understanding how it affects everybody and what the right ways to protect ourselves are. So I, I don't know if I answered your question on that, on that, but for sure, everyone's different. Everybody's different. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Rafael. Sometimes how I think about it is like in the life of a virus, this is still a baby or an infant virus. And so we just don't know, like there are other um, similar viruses to this, but for this particular virus, it's still in a very young stage scientifically to fully understand and therefore be able to combat it from, you know, antivirals or um, 
even the development of uh, further vaccinations and or um, like in, in some ways mitigating practices. Although the one thing I think that is clear is that in terms of mitigating practices, that this is an airborne virus. And so mitigating practices need to be based on an airborne virus versus a virus that would be on the skin or by touch or another way of transmitting virus, that this is airborne. And that's how we have to think about um, mitigating practices, but also the other point that I'm hearing you say, and my you know lay women's way of speaking about it is like, it's a baby virus. We don't know enough about it yet. We need um, more time to understand why it impacts or people's reactions are almost individual, individual, and um, why certain people get long COVID and why certain people get long COVID symptoms that are these 10 symptoms, but a different person may get long COVID symptoms that are five different symptoms. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of how I think about it and verbalize about it. Yeah, I, th I think it's a good way to do it. You know, so sometimes if we understand things in a way that's useful, it's actually just as good as knowing what the real truth of the matter is. Um, so, so for instance, if we had thought of COVID as being in the air the entire time, we could have cleaned up that messaging right away. There would have been no confusions about masks and, and, and whether or not you should wear them. And it, it seems what's happened recently is that there was one study that said that masks, although the mask didn't work, and that one study, everyone wanted to hear it, made it on all the news networks, and now that's it. Everyone believes that masks don't work. But physically, N95 respirators, the good mask with a good seal on your face, will reduce the amount of virus that you will inhale. And that's how you get COVID, right? So this is like, it's not, you don't need a randomized control study for something you can physically measure, right? You could physically measure the, the amount of droplets get caught in an N95 mask, and then you could physically quantify how much virus you trapped. And you could you could actually do that experiment. And that, that would be a published a publishable thing, right? Where you could say, hey, this is how much it took down your viral load, right? Or, or how, much, how much load you received uh, in the beginning. So, so yeah, and that, that does open the avenue for technological protection, right? It opens the avenue for far UV lighting, which, which, you know, hopefully one day it'll just be everywhere and we'll be frying viruses in the air, like at every school and every grocery store and every building, you know, th that kind of stuff probably is on its way, but it's just slowed down right now. Research on stuff like that, right? So, so those aren't practical mitigations now, but the one thing that always stuck out to me during the pandemic, as everyone tried to figure out what exact spike mutation or variant was the thing causing all of the cases to spike in all the certain areas. And it was none of that. It was, it was, if you did, if you avoided large crowds, you, you probably didn't get COVID, right? During the pandemic, right? If you weren't in crowds of people that had COVID, you didn't get COVID. And the human behavior and aspects of these R numbers or reproduction numbers uh, they, they were never emphasized. And really that's what it comes down to. 
So, so what I meant by saying that that understanding that a framework for understanding is sometimes more useful than than the absolute truth. If you think about it, that it's an airborne virus, and you reduce your exposure to areas where there's high densities of people exhaling, then you've got the right risk management framework for for trying not to get it and to limit how much uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus that you're actually exposed to, right? And you didn't have to know the exact mechanism and the exact, uh, uh, you didn't have to know exactly how, you know, what dose of the virus is necessary and then what randomized trial you need for what mask and how to wear. You just, you just generally know that if you're avoiding crowds, that you're in pretty good, you're pretty good spot. And you generally know that if your immune system can react faster, you have a better chance of surviving what you get. And, and the science and the technology will move along. Um, but the mitigations, they don't change much, right? So, so why don't we teach that now going forward? Why don't we teach risk management? And here are the risk factors. And here's the tools in your toolbox that you can use to protect you and your family. And then it's up to you, right? You, you, you make the choices you want to make. I think everyone's done listening, being told what to do for lockdowns and whatnot and this and that. I think, I think the chance to use that messaging is gone um, just because of the exhaustion in the American public. Um, but we could educate people on, on, on how, how it works in a general framework that's useful enough for people to make good decisions going forward. Thank you. Um, so let's, let's drill down just a little bit with that. Um, if you were to give a class, Raphael, mm -hmm. on mitigating practices that need to perhaps continue, um, so you talked about masks, you talked about one study that mainstream media gloned onto, and of course it was perfect timing for lots of reasons, it was the perfect storm with high level officials saying that it's over, et cetera, et cetera, right around that same time. And, people saying, okay, we don't need to mask anymore. Masks don't work. Um, but that obviously globally isn't the case for airborne illness or disease. Um, right. Historically, globally, masks have been used. Uh, American exceptionalism maybe says that we don't need to use them because we're Americans. Right. Um, tell us a little bit more about the UV lights, um, because I don't think that I don't think there's a lot of information about that. And then what would be a couple of other um, mitigating practices that you would include in your class? So yeah, the, the, the UV light is there's, so it's kind of, if you imagine, it's, imagine it's beta technology, right? It's stuff that, that there's research papers on that shows that at roughly 222 nanometer wavelengths of light, um, which is just, you know, how fast the light photons actually vibrate, right? Or how wide the wavelength of, that they vibrate at is. Um, it can't penetrate your skin, can't penetrate your eyes, but blasts right through coronaviruses of all kinds. Uh, they use far UV lighting for sterilizing surgical rooms at different wavelengths. Uh, and right now, you know, it would be neat for uh, the, that technology to come down. Right now, a single bulb for UV lighting is thousands of dollars. It's not practical. Uh, it's probably not gonna happen anytime soon. But if someone were to make that into an LED lighting strip and could produce these things for five cents, all of a sudden we've got a really cool tool in the toolbox. So unfortunately, that's not a mitigation strategy now. And there's probably a lot of controversy about what I just said about it frying coronaviruses in the air. Um, 
but they there have been studies and there's been research, published research in, in journals, peer reviewed, not you know, not guys on the street making this up, uh, where where that's a real future, right? For for what we're going to do uh, going forward. Um, in in terms of mitigations, I, I really think it comes down to understanding that it's in the air, right? If if you understand that, all the other decisions are going to come down to that. It's going to be staying out of staying out of crowds if you're you know especially if you know that your risk factors are high if you're immunocompromised if you're if you're uh, over the age of 65 if you know all all of the risk factors if, if you're high in any of the risk factors think twice about going into a, a heavily densely packed space without some protection an n95 mask uh, would be a good one and then expect that in your lifetime if you haven't gotten it which is which would be incredible uh, that you're probably going to get it so you got to decide whether or not you want a full-blown infection from what's going on out in the real world uh, uh, or, or to take a shot of a vaccine um, and just train your immune system. Train it to, to be able to recognize it so that you have a better shot of, of surviving it. Also, uh, I, I personally recommend that, you know, that when I got it, the day I had the test, I was looking around for a prescription for Paxlovid and was able to get one within the first few days. And it really moved the needle. Um, that's not so much mitigation as what to do after you get it. Uh, but but these are these are the tools in the toolbox, you know that that we know about. Uh, in terms of interesting other things that we could do, you know there was there are so many tools we could use when we were taking data, right? You could look on areas of the city, right, which had high concentration of of, of virus, and you knew where not to go. And we can't can't really do that because we're not taking the data. Um, you know, all of the testing strategies still apply, but they're no longer paid for, so that's expensive to do. So serial testing can get out ahead of an infection and you spreading the infection. That could help you from stopping it, but the test testing has dried up for lack of a, of a better term. There's just not enough tests out there to even do statistics on, on, on what the numbers are. There's just not enough testing going on, um, half because it's not paid for and half because the messaging is, has, is gone now. I appreciate that very much um, that I'm going to frame it a little bit differently, maybe, but that this horrible and tragic, um, this time of so much death of the entire time from 2020 till now, um, that a positive part could be that we understand um, keeping our immune system as healthy as could be possible and living healthy in that way. I do want to jump back for just a tiny bit, Raphael, in terms of mitigating practices. Um, I'd like to get your input on air um, purifiers, air circulation. I know that's something that we're still doing at Generation Justice anytime that we're gathering people. We bring in our Corsi Rosenthal boxes, our air purifiers, and at least try to keep some air circulating in um, the space that we work in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. You, yeah, I, I missed a big one there because I'm sitting right in front of an air purifier, and I've got one in basically every room of the house, right? Uh, and that's that. That's another way to get the virus out of the air, right? Because it's aerosolized. It's another way to trap not only it, just the junk that's floating around in the air, but you you will actually with HEPA filtration you will trap those viruses, you know, inside of the HEPA filters of these devices. And of course, the Rosenthal box, that's, that's fantastic. That was a DIY 
kind of thing. Um, I actually had, I made a mask out of the exact same material that Phil Treat 1900, I think it was at the time. The first masks that I made were, were, were the, actually, I have one right here. It was, this was the FDA's mask, right, design where you could 3D print that. And inside of that is the same material you're using in your Corsi Rosenthal box. But I wore this thing, right, since the beginning of the pandemic, just because 3D printing is cool and I love it. Um, but but just because I, 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 I understood, I understand the, aeros the aerosolized aspect of it. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, if you can if you can filter the air, you should. I had an air filter in my daughter's class, you know, uh, for the longest time when they allowed us to do that. And and again, n equals one kind of story. It, it, after I had to take it out because it took up too much space, and the school had installed um, uh, air scrubbers that they use now at APS. They have air scrubbers in the classroom. As soon as the HEPA filter was was out of there, it wasn't two weeks later before a huge outbreak right, hit the school and my daughter got it for the first time. This was a long time ago. And, you know, I don't have any proof that that's what it was. And I don't know if they're running the air scrubbers or not, but, you know, for at least that amount of time, I was able to, to, to use that. And in what I believe was a situation where it helped keep her and her classmates safe. So, yeah. And that, again, goes right back to this understanding. It's in the air. Uh, let's clean the air, right? Let's just, let, let's clean it. And, and, you know, you have to be careful with what you say, just because, you know, the FDA and the FTC make it real clear that you're not gonna make any claims about protecting yourself from COVID, right? This is a weird spot in the regulatory space where you're not allowed to make claims about prevention of disease or prevention of illness or curing disease or illness. You're, not, you're just not allowed to make those claims for products in advertising, which disincentivize the messaging of, hey, you know, like uh, the one example that I can bring up was a nasal spray, um, that uh, it was a nasal spray you could use and it was proven to protect against bacteria. And they, they did a study, or they referenced the study from a, uh, a university that said that it might have protective effects against COVID-19. All they did was reference the study that someone did on their nasal spray on their website, and the FTC came and sued them. And they're still in court to this day because they violated the Coronavirus Protection Act of 2021, or I forget what the name of the act is. There is literally a law that says you can't make claims about protecting yourself, uh, which, which means that if, <laughs> if, if you do believe that air filters help you and you happen to make air filters, you can't advertise it in this country. So I don't know, that just leaves you in a place where your lifestyle has to factor that in, where you're left making decisions on your own because nothing, nothing that doesn't have a randomized control trial that's vetted and accepted by the powers that be uh, will be advertised. So you're on your own to, to, to figure out that stuff. So maybe maybe together as a community, we can have you know discussions like this from time to time and we can figure out exactly what, what are the good, what are good things to do? We, we promise we won't make any claims on, uh, on uh, whether it cures or prevents any illness, uh, but for sure there's better ways to manage the risk than to not manage the risk. So thank you for reminding me about that airfield. It's funny that I missed it. I'm sitting right in front of him, so, yeah. Because it's become a part of your life. Yes, very much so. Yeah, very much so. Um, so, Raphael, September 2023, we're not, we're not tracking. We're not testing at the same levels. Testing is totally individualized. If I can afford to go by the tests, um, I can get tested if, you know, 
if my insurance agrees to pay for a PCR test versus an antigen test, I can get it. Or if I'm privileged enough um, to pay over $100 to go to Walgreens, whereas before I'd go to Walgreens and get a PCR, or I could go to Net Medical, or I could go to Curative, and get a PCR test and know for certain with the Omicron variant uh, that I was either infected and I needed to be careful and stay home and not infect other people, or I was okay to go out and do the other things in my life. We're not testing, we're not doing tracking. Um, numbers are harder and harder and harder to find there's national articles coming out this last couple of months that we are hitting more spikes. There's a little bit more hospitalization due to COVID. I, I want you to talk about um, the numbers, the data, the statistics that you do have. Yeah, so, so, the, so our numbers you know, ran out early in the year. It was, it was a dead stop in terms of people, enough people showing up to do statistics. But it's even worse than that. The Walgreens, I believe the Walgreens COVID testing index is offline now. You can't get at that. And I do believe Walgreens, COVID, uh, CVS, and some of the other big uh, uh, places have stopped. You can't do PCR testing there now there anymore. So testing availability is gone. So what am I looking at now if I want to understand what's going on? So hospitalization rates you can still get from the CDC for COVID-19. Um, and, the, and the CDC also has a wastewater testing initiative that goes across the nation, which wasn't a thing, I don't think a year ago, but is now. And if you go look at that, you can see the numbers ticking up for Los Alamos, Santa Fe, and Albuquerque right now in terms of what they're tracking in, in, in those jurisdictions. Um, so in, in those areas, you know, we don't have total numbers, but we know that there are twice as many people from 15 days ago than now that are that are shedding COVID-19 into wastewater. So, the, but that's about as good as it gets, right? The, the, the numbers, they're not really there anymore. The state still takes numbers on positive cases, but they're not tracking uh, negative cases. And that data, my summaries for that, don't even show any information on that. The coronavirus website has been archived, I think at NMDOH, if you go look at it, it says that it's archived. So, so we really don't know. We're, 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 I, hate to, I hate for that to be the message, but we're kind, you know, we're kind of flying blind on this stuff. The closest thing we have is wastewater, which is an okay after the fact proxy of, of what everyone already has. Um, but it's not like it was before. It's not like we had the data to make good decisions we did uh, before. And the testing situation is, 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 is tough. It's just, it's hard. It's hard to do, offer it as a business for sure when, one, the demand is so far down that nobody wants it. And two, the, the people paying for it have structured it in a way where, where you know, certain, the tests that made sense back in the day for multi-panel testing, now you have to have meet very, really strict criteria for even getting access to the best tests that are out there. So um, that may change. There's stuff on the horizon where that will change uh, in terms of access to testing could increase just because uh, new devices will come into the field that are easier and have less regulatory restrictions to operate. And that may make it easier to offer testing at more reasonable prices. 
Um, but a lot of that technology was developed during the pandemic with the expectation that the testing numbers would still be something versus nothing where it is now. So sorry, that's, <laughs> that's not great news. And th there's not a lot of numbers in what I just said, but, but that's, uh, that's, that's, really, that's really where it's at. Other than that, you can track you know, causes of, of death, right? Uh, the CDC still has COVID as the top 10 cause of death. And 88% uh, of those people are 65 and older. So factor, you can factor that into your risk management toolbox uh, is that it's, a, it's still affecting the elderly. Uh, and it's still it's still out there. It's still one of the top ten reasons, you know, causes of death right now in the United States. So I'm just going to repeat that, based on the CDC, which is where we look to in this country for understanding disease. COVID nineteen is still in the top ten reasons death in this country. And if you look at the numbers of people who have died from COVID-19, this is not 2020. This is not 2021. This is 2023. We're still seeing the people who are dying the most are people over the age of 65. The message is, if you love your elders, do some mitigating practices in your life because we still have a number of people who will contract COVID and be asymptomatic, not have the sniffles, not have runny eyes, not have a sore throat. And then we'll have people who will have those symptoms who will not get tested. And so there's not a definitive answer as to whether or not you're contagious. That's my message, Raphael. If you love your elders, do mitigating practices because the pandemic isn't over. Raphael, it's been such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Um, you're so full of information and knowledge and you know, you've spent a lot of your time researching and I just appreciate that you would come and share your knowledge with us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure, Roberta. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Mr. Rubio, for sharing your expertise and for carrying an understanding of the power and the importance of mitigating practices to prevent the spread of COVID-19 and for providing the opportunity for COVID-19 testing to happen. I appreciate you. Coming up next is our vaccine equity segment, where we connect what we just learned from Rafael Rubio to our weekly updates to our listeners. Here's our host, Barbara Ramirez. Thank you, Lily. Hello, and welcome back to another vaccine equity segment, New Mexico. On Monday, the FDA approved a reformulated COVID-19 vaccine by Pfizer and Moderna, specifically to target Omicron variants, including variant XPB.1.5. The CDC is encouraging everyone six months and older to get vaccinated as soon as the vaccine is available to them. According to the latest available CDC data, the average COVID-19 hospitalization rate nationwide rose about 15.6% between July and the end of August. In New Mexico, hospitalizations have risen by 14% in the last 14 days. 
stated on September 11, according to the New York Times. If you're not up to date with your vaccinations, visit vaccinenm.org or call your pharmacy to schedule an appointment today. Don't forget to wash your hands frequently, wear a KN95 mask, and practice social distancing to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Tune in next week for more vaccine equity and COVID updates. Now back to our host, Lily Luca, with the Community Calendar segment. Tonight's Community Calendar has events that make me feel like fall is just around the corner. As you venture out into your community, remain safe and vigilant with your COVID practices like wearing a KN95 mask and testing appropriately. Let's get started with the fifth annual New Mexico Prickly Pear Festival on Saturday, September 23rd. Interact with vendors, chefs, farmers, and more, and learn about prickly pear significance in native and indigenous communities in the Southwest. Come join the fun from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the historic Gutierrez Hubble House Museum in the South Valley at 6029 Isleta Boulevard, Southwest. For more information, go to nmpricklypearfest.com. Also on Saturday, September 23rd, hear stories from indigenous authors in the form of books, poems, songs, and crafts, all centered around Pueblo core values of family, nature, storytelling, and respect at the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center's Family Storytime. This event will take place from 10 to 11 a.m. at the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center at 2401 12th Street Northwest. For any questions, please call 505-843-7270. This next event highlights the New Mexico Japanese American Citizens League celebration of the fall season with an Aki Matsuri, translation, fall festival. Aki Matsuri will be taking place at Expo New Mexico on Sunday, September 24th from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. at 300 San Pedro Drive, Northeast. Email info at nmjacl.org for more information. Again, that's info at nmjacl.org. We hope you've enjoyed this hour of COVID-19 education. We'd like to thank our guest, Rafael Rubio. Tonight's hour of radio was produced by Robert Tarael and Barbara Ramirez, with production assistance from myself, Lily Lukau. We want to give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We could not do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM, for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org. We're also active on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and follow our playlists on Spotify. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Con Alma Health Foundation, the New Mexico Department of Health Infectious Disease Bureau through the Better Together Program, and Office of School and Adolescent Health as well as the City of Albuquerque, Race Forward, Media Justice, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. I am Lily Lukau. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Good night, New Mexico.